Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS pod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today we welcome on the SASPOD Jisha Menon, Professor of Theatre and Performance Studies at Stanford and up until about two weeks ago, Director of the Stanford Center for South Asia. It was under her leadership that the idea of the CSA podcast took shape and so it seems extremely apt that she conclude her tenure as Director with an appearance on the SASPOD. Jisha, it's such an honor to have you as a guest today. How are you? I'm great, Lalita. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on this podcast. I think it's delightful that we're doing this and uh, congratulations to you on coming up with the idea and executing it with so much grace and finesse. It's just been such a treat to listen to the various sessions on the podcast. You've done such a tremendous job, so congratulations. You're so kind. It's a shame we're on audio because people can't see I'm beaming from ear to ear. Thank you, I really appreciate that. Um, you were the director of the center for four years. What would you say some of your greatest achievements were in that time, apart from the SASPOD, obviously? Uh, apart from this aspect, definitely hiring you. Uh, so that was definitely, I think, a highlight because you've enabled so many things uh, at CSA and been such a great resource for our students and faculty. And, you know, I think we've also just had such a great time working together and meeting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think I would say that um, what's made it really special are the people. I think it's, you know, um, mm-hmm. the people at Center for South Asia are its greatest resource. And, and I'm glad that the work that we've done has been able to support our junior faculty, our postdocs, our graduate students. And I think the success of any center really depends on its people because they're the cornerstone of everything we do. And it's easy to focus externally and say, well, look at all the events we did, but it's uh, this core dynamic constituency that's created so much energy and vitality around the things that we've been able to do. So, you know, not only in terms of the diversity of the faculty and our community, which has included scholars on Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and in addition to India, but also disciplinary diversity, right? We've had folks from political science, anthropology, arts, literature, Um, economics. So we've had such um, a diverse team of people. And I think that they all brought their energy and ideas to the center, which is what made it such a dynamic and lively place. And we were able to do so many things that range from graduates taking, uh, graduate students taking on the initiative and doing conferences around imperialism and erotics and um, you know, uh, postdoc Myra Hyatt did a wonderful uh, workshop series on water, um, and we had 
um, Elaine Fisher, who did something on Vedanta Hinduism, right. and just, you know, Rowan Cantor, Alexander Key, working together on Muslim culture. So it's really the faculty, the students who've taken the initiative and brought their own research interests to the center and really made it a very dynamic place. So that's definitely something that I'm very proud of that we did. Thank you so much for that overview, Jisha, and thank you for your super kind words at the at the start of that. Um, I will I will take that as a big badge of honor. Um, and yes, the community at Stanford is really incredible, and I'm very excited that we're going back into some kind of real life model because it certainly has been strange the past year and a half. You are now moving into a senior role as the director of Stanford Global Studies, which is the umbrella for 14 centers and programs at Stanford, of which the center for South Asia is one. Um, I know you've only just started, but I would love to hear some of your vision for the next few years. So Global Studies, as you know, you know brings together 14 outstanding regional and transnational research centers that are, each one is really at the forefront of its own field. And taken together, Global Studies, you know, doesn't just uh, offer us a variety of regional takes on issues that are burning or pertinent in these particular regions. But also, I think it's important to foreground uh, the transnational dynamics and think about how uh, global studies can offer a kind of way of thinking, whether it's around issues of climate crisis or migration or even infectious diseases. All of these are transnational issues and they require, um, you know, sort of uh, solutions that would rely on global systems while also confirming national boundaries. So my main goal um, as SGS director is to foster research under the auspices of global studies. Uh, we've already done a lot of work under Jeremy Weinstein in making um, the curricular programs uh, really important to cultivate a whole set of courses and make um, global studies such an integral part of the college curriculum, the first year civic liberal global education. He's also uh, done a lot with innovation grants to spur new courses around global studies. And what I would like to do is in addition to the teaching, really foster research programs. So we're thinking about this, we can start research workshops and um, global dialogues that uh, take up some of these transnational issues. So you hear more about these um, works in progress soon, so stay tuned. We will stay tuned. Thank you so much. It's, uh, you've, you really hit the ground running by the sounds of it. Yeah, we have. We're, we've been very busy. Uh, and not only are you, were you directing the Center for South Asia and now directing Stanford Global Studies, but you are also uh, about to release a new book, which is what I also want to talk about. Congratulations to start with. Uh, so the book is published by Northwestern University Press and it's going to be released next month. It's called Brutal Beauty, Aesthetics and Aspiration in Urban India. And I was very fortunate to get my hands on a preview copy. Uh, it's, uh, it's a beautiful book. The title, uh, Brutal Beauty, I found evocative. Um, but after I finished reading the book, I realized how appropriate it is in that I was, I was actually a little confused as to my mix of emotions, like 
There is so much brutality in the book in the way you describe the effects of neoliberalism on the urban landscape and its citizens. And yet there is also so much beauty uh, in the arts that you describe. So I was wondering if you chose that somewhat oxymoronic title exactly because you wanted to elicit mixed emotions in the reader. Excellent. No, I think that that's a really beautiful way of introducing the book. I think the book is trying to, uh, you know, sort of encapsulate that contradictoriness that, um, you know, often you hear narratives of the, the city in decline or the death of the city, but I also wanted to foreground its productive and its dynamic generative aspects. You know, I, um, I came into this project um, through my own creative work uh, when I was directing a show that was, uh, you know, sort of trying to capture the urban transformations in Bangalore. And I worked with a group of actors and uh, crew who were extremely dynamic. So creativity and ingenuity is very much part of the story about this urban transformation. And the primary ways in which I think uh, narratives of urban transformation are told are through accounts that focus on planning, urban planning policy, that talk about the kind of chiasmic relationship between the market and the state, economy and um, politics. And I wanted to insert the aesthetic dimension because mm -hmm. I think the aesthetics of uh, neoliberalism are really sort of important to underline. So on the one hand, we're looking at um, how it manifests within, you know, sort of city making discourses. I mean, if the ideal is to create a kind of world-class city template, you're thinking about creating these shopping malls and uh, glass and chrome high-rise buildings, widening your roads. Mm -hmm. And so it, uh, you know, it implies a certain kind of um, destructive process as well. You're trying simultaneously to make sure that, you know, sort of informal settlements give way to these large shopping malls. You're going to, um, you know, decimate the tree cover. Uh, you're going to be also indulging in certain kinds of um, violent right. activities, right? There is a brutality that's unacknowledged in this, uh, in this whole project of making the city beautiful, which also you know, includes the kind of teeming democratic masses that you find unbeautiful, that you just basically need to make invisible and you move to the peripheries of the city so that the city itself can be remade to um, uh, aspire to this kind of global world-class city model. Mm -hmm. And the other side of the story that I also wanted to tell concurrently was what's happening to the citizens. You know, it's not just the city that's being remade. The citizens are also in the process right. of kind of being remade into these new neoliberal urban subjects. And I kind of uh, draw on the work of Foucault and Wendy Brown and their um, you know, work around human capital and the way in which the notion of enterprise is inculcated within the urban neoliberal subject and the ways in which they comport themselves in ways that maximize their capital value through practices of entrepreneurialism, investment. And in this kind of relentless pursuit of self-enhancement, you're constantly in the process of trying to upgrade and improve your own portfolio values. So these kind of relentless acts of uh, self-enhancement takes its own toll. It produces exhaustion, mm -hmm. burnout, attrition, 
And so it's this kind of 24 seven productivity without pause kind of work culture that we're in that itself has its brutal dimension. So in the process of remaking ourselves into these ever more curated, super enhanced urban subjects, there is another kind of brutal dimension that's mm-hmm. in place. So it's simultaneously telling the story of the remaking of the city and the remaking of the urban subject as well. You, you use the word generative, and I was wondering if it would be helpful for, for our, us as the listener, uh, if you could just describe some of the artworks in the book to exemplify what you mean by that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, And the like book is I very said, strong in that. I mean, obviously, the book has, has some pictures, so there is the, the benefit of the visual. Um, but nevertheless, your, your close readings of the artwork are just such a joy to read. And I think if you can speak some of those, then that will be really helpful for our audience. Thank you. That's very kind. I, I do love writing about these artworks because um, I think the artists are so astute in the way that they're able to... Um, highlight these new dramatis personae of the city. So we've moved away from the kind of Baudelairean, Benjaminian flaneur who's strolling down the city walks of Paris to these new uh, dramatis personae, right? We're looking at the road maker, we're looking at the displaced farmer, we're looking at the waste picker, the electronic waste picker. So here are some new protagonists of this emerging uh, urban metropolis. And I, I just find that the, the attention with which they uh, lay out the works incredibly astute. Um, so, you know, to uh, get to some of the works, for instance, Sheila Gauda uh, creates this piece called Dark Room and it's a large scale installation that's composed of metal tar drums that are used by road makers mm-hmm. to build Bangalore's highways. And the work itself registers the precarious labor of construction workers in the metropolis. So these migrant construction workers, they work under conditions of precarity, right? I mean, they barely make the legally mandated uh, minimum wages. They work for very long hours. They, um, they're in very hazardous, risky situations. Um, there's incredible amounts of job insecurity. They face health hazards. And so you see this real urban precariat coming into um, view in some of these artworks. And Sheila Gauda's Dark Room, for instance, she reassembles and reconstellates these tar drums to create a kind of colonnade. And then you have to move, the viewer has to literally move within and inside this cultural piece. You have to kind of grovel, you have to be on your knees to move through it. So she literally makes you kind of lose your sense of bearings and you're mm-hmm. on your hands and knees trying to move through this cultural installation until you uh, emerge in a different space in the installation where you're able to rise up and you look up and you see these spring, a kind of sprinkling of stars um, on top. And I think the the title of the piece, Dark Room itself, is kind of um, moving us to thinking about the kind of photographic metaphor. She wants us to think about how the image materializes, how this dark room, which we imagine as an abject or despairing space of this construction worker, can also be a space of magic. Um, you know, there is beauty in this space. So, you know, it sort of makes you. Um, lose your own sense of bearing and travel through this sculptural piece 
and really uh, make you inhabit a different way of being in this particular kind of space. Um, another piece that I, I love is ragi.net, mm, which yes. is Sureka's piece. And in this, Sureka, who's another artist from Bangalore, she um, takes computer keyboards, abandoned computer keyboards, and she flips them around and she grows ragi, which is finger millet, out of these abandoned keyboards. And it's, you know, ragi is a crop that's native to Karnataka, uh, but it's also because of this rampant development of the city, many ragi fields are now seized from their farmers and converted to technology parks to you know, service the needs of the IT industry. Um, and she collaborated with a farmer, um, some uh, Subramani in Varathur in um, Bangalore. And so instead of these IT firms that are springing up on Ragi farmland, she literally kind of flips that around and she says, well, let's look at Ragi sprouting out of these discarded keyboards instead. And I think the work itself, you know, sort of speaks to the way in which technology encroaches on and damages these generative sources of food and um, sustenance. And she um, is sort of thinking about the ecological ramifications of those kinds of development projects. And of course, you know, along the way she is, you know, there's a commentary there on how, uh, these technology industries have impacted um, agrarian economies, right? And we know that it's had a tremendous impact. Um, neoliberal economies have had um, a huge impact on the agrarian crisis, which has included footloose migration, the kind of despair-driven exodus of farmers. Um, we know that um, you know, between 1991 and 2001, over 7 million people who used to be involved in cultivation have quit farming, not to mention farmer suicides, about 300,000 recorded between 1995 and 2005. So you know, she's sort of indexing a lot more than what you're seeing in this piece, but there's a lot of layering in that artwork. She herself comes from a farming community. So there's a lot that uh, that's autobiographical in her works as well. So that's another piece that I thought was really powerful and making a very kind of interesting critique of the kind of uh, rampant development of urban cities. Another piece that I love um, looks at the electronic waste picker. And this is uh, Krishnarad Chonat's work. Um, uh, called My Hands Smell of You. Mm -hmm. And here it's, you know, it's, um, he has this kind of shimmering chandelier-like sculpture that dangles from the ceiling. And as soon as you observe it more closely, you see that it's a, it's basically uh, heaps of scrapped electronic waste, discarded telephones, keyboards, mice, etc. Um, and of course, the title itself is really telling because it, it almost evokes a kind of romantic, idea, right. erotic maybe, um, but of course the, the smell that he's referring to is the smell that lingers from the toxic electronic waste. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole commentary there on um, the way in which these deadly practices will live on uh, and linger on the skin and memory of others. Uh, and he sort of has a little performative uh, piece that's, um, that you know he creates in a different iteration of this exhibition in Pompidou in 
Paris, where he exchanges mm-hmm. uh, with the viewer. The viewer is supposed to bring any piece of um, electronic waste that they want to discard, and he will take that piece and return it with a bar of sandalwood soap. So there's this whole kind of economy that's set into motion around toxic waste and the fragrant kind of, or even restorative and healing kind of gift um, that he returns. So there's that kind of new uh, economy that he's setting into place. So there, these are just sort of some examples of the ways in which artists are taking up uh, issues and looking at different kinds of labor practices, whether it's construction work, road making, the electronic waste picker, uh, the displaced farmer and thinking about uh, how can we activate a sense of uh, awareness within viewers who are coming to see the art pieces. So as you were talking of construction workers, a truck came by. I don't know if the microphone picked that up, but it was very apt um, because there's something um, so incredibly um, timely about this. The, the way that you describe the um, the destruction of slums, for instance, to make way for capitalist settlements, um, and and then also how how we in the global north benefit from that. And and in that performance piece you just described, I mean the sandalwood bar is given, right? But really, what happens is that we're just taking it, and we're taking all these things, and we're not, and we're just dumping. And and the the the, the chapter on electronic waste. I mean, I felt shamed by it. I was sitting in my very small apartment in Silicon Valley and looking at my two iPads, my two laptops, my, you know, I mean, I've lived here for a few years only, and I already have obsolete electronics, what's going to happen to those? I mean, it was, it was very powerful. And then reading about the art. Um, in the, in the chapter on call centers, which I loved, um, you talk about the need to go beyond entrenched conceptual binaries, such as the global north and, and global south. Um, uh, and, and again, sitting here in Silicon Valley, which is perhaps to the global north as Bangalore is to the global south, if we want to make a kind of a very simplistic parallel. We, I was thinking we've already moved so far past that distinction in that I can't actually go outside right now because of the smoke. Uh, and I have a, a, a little fan you know, going loud in the other room to try and clean the air. Uh, we're almost certainly heading for water shortages because of this ongoing drought. There's extreme food insecurity for many people uh, here in Silicon Valley, which is such a wealthy place, uh, especially after the pandemic. So how do these binaries even still exist? What keeps them in place? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely correct. That I think one of the things that we take from studying these cities is that these binaries actually don't hold. Many of these right. binaries just they're they don't hold in these um, in these new kinds of uh, cosmopolitan contact zones that are crisscrossed by complex global dynamics of movement and commodities and technologies. All of these older certitudes that are offered by these geopolitical binaries begin to uh, crumble. Right? I mean, uh, this was really manifest in. Um, uh, you know, the story of Flint, Michigan, right? I mean, is the, these are little pockets, um, impoverished post-industrial cities in the US, whether it's Detroit or Cleveland or Dayton, Jackson, Fresno, all of these sort of cities, uh, you see how the third world lives in the first world, right? That these are not, um, you can't really separate them into separate parts of the globe. 
the third world very much exists. It's just been ignored and we're not really talking about it. Um, they've just not visible anymore. They're not a priority. And so we don't talk about it. And conversely, you see, you know, these gated communities in countries like India, where you, they're just these little enclaves of privilege. But they're even named after many Californian cities, right? There's like Palo Alto <laughs> Boulevard and other kind of names where you see that, you know, uh, the extreme privilege and they're surrounded by, again, um, people who make that, those lives possible, the kind of precariat that's surrounding these. And Catherine Boo's uh, book, Behind the Beautiful Forevers, in fact, uh, tells the story of the uh, informal settlement Annawadi, which is um, just housed behind this really fancy international airport and luxury hotels in Mumbai. So you can see the, the proximity within which, um, you know, the sort of elite live uh, just right beside, but yet continue to you know, not just ignore, but also live off, off the labor of the, of the people uh, who they then surveil with great intensity every time they enter into their native communities. And we, you know, I sort of discussed that a little bit as well. So these, these are the new mappings of space and desire that completely elude the older modernist categories. You know? So I think like um, the kind of secure binary between the subject and the object that you have and someone like Du Bois' work and Society of the Spectacle is completely uh, gives way to a much more unstable kinetic um, vertiginous, even force field of encounters and intensities, and um, you know, which is part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to suggest that these are the new kinds of um, cityscapes that we're inhabiting, where those older binaries just give way. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is the one thing? I don't know if you can say this. What is the one thing you would like your reader to take away from the book? I think the, you know, I think that the thing that I really wanted to get to was that these aesthetic projects are very contradictory, you know, whether it's the aesthetic project of remaking the city or of remaking the self, it's always laced with this kind of violence that operates in sometimes overt uh, and sometimes insidious ways. They repress the democratic multitudes that are teeming within the city. Uh, they're just deemed unesthetic right? Uh, then they goad you, incite you to accumulate and then discard objects and that perpetuate these kinds of capitalist and caste regimes. They entice you to live in ways where you're constantly kind of imagining a better elsewhere, you know, and uh, they in the process also enervate our social institutions, they degrade your material environment, they wear you down, uh, with the relentless pressures of uh, just sort of enhancing the self and the, you know, produces attrition and burnout. Um, so I think that's, that's basically what the story I wanted to tell was that the, the aesthetics do that, right? They, they produce these kinds of contradictory effects. They can definitely have its brutal dimension, but at the same time, they also produce new forms of desiring. We've seen the extraordinary solidarities that they've produced, right? Even during COVID times, we've seen the 
really inspiring protests, the anti-CAA protests, mm -hmm. the Pharma protests, the Shaheen Bagh protests, these new solidarities, what Hannah Arendt would call, you know, the sites of natality, those stories have to be told along with the stories about the city that's in crisis. So I think aesthetics allows you to tell this kind of double story, this contradictory story. Thank you so much, Jisha Menon, for spending time with me today on the SASPOD. Uh, good luck with everything that's ahead of you. Thanks, Lalita. It was great chatting with you. Also, as always, thanks to Soham Shiva for creating the music and Simrat Matharu for post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.